Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I enjoy reading my students' finals. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I enjoyed submitting my last final. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Whiskey Barrels Shake Dark Chocolate Porter from the Boulder Beer Company. We have had this one's predecessor before, the standard Shake Dark Chocolate Porter, but we haven't had the Whiskey Barrel form. We're taking a break from our season of cinnamon to give Ralph just an island of, of, of something uh, he is comfortable with in the middle of the winter months, uh, but we'll get back to cinnamon uh, later this year. This feels appropriate. I want to acknowledge on tape, uh, I finished my degree, and so I now have earned a PhD in educational psychology, and this feels like just the kind of celebration I wanted. So uh, what are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? This month, we are joined again by guest Yuki Tarada to discuss his 2022 Education Research Roundup. His team at Edutopia has curated their 10 top studies of the year. From retrieval practice to play-based learning. And we discuss every last one of them in a marathon episode. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read the 10 most significant education studies of 2022, written by Yuki Tarada and Steve Merrill at Edutopia, and we are fortunate to be joined by Yuki Tarada. Yuki, this is his second appearance, and Yuki Tarada is Edutopia's research editor. He has a background in education research and looks at how all the Edutopia content aligns with the research base. He first appeared in episode 024, and he's back with us now. Welcome, Yuki. We're so happy to have you back. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure being here. Every year you do these roundups where you're looking at lots and lots of education studies and summarizing some of the most applicable, some of the most insightful. And being a research nerd, I really love reading it every year. Yeah, I love writing this article uh, this year with Steve and with other people in previous years. It's, it's, it's one of the most fun articles to write, largely because it's kind of the culmination of a year's worth of looking at research, uh, because we don't just you know sit down and write it and then publish it, but throughout the year we're covering research. So we're looking at leads, we're looking at studies, we're looking at research throughout the whole year. I'm writing about research. I have you know previous articles, and a lot of these highlights are based off of uh, previous articles that I've written throughout the year. Um, yeah, it's such a fun article to write. I love how they're all short and snappy, but really tactical. Um, you know, our main goal is to make it something that's relevant for teachers, that uh, they can uh, gain some kind of little insight that they can they can apply to their classroom. It's a lighter, lighter workload because instead of actually me diving into an article uh, for four hours, you have done that work for me. So I get to enjoy all of your, you know, early lifting so that I can just say, hey, that, that looks great. That sounds great. I'm excited about how useful this is going to be. From your position as 
a education research editor at Edutopia, you've got to be reading hundreds of education research articles a year. Yeah, easily, easily hundreds. I mean, 52 weeks, 52 weeks in a year, you know, I'm reading more than, you know, four, five, six. I'm probably reading, you know, a dozen every week. I'm probably, I'm probably looking at, you know, 50 to 100 every week. Um, so. How do you create the criteria to whittle that down to the 10 you're going to use to represent the year 2022? So we have kind of a, a way of doing things that is very teacher-centric, that is very much looking at a study and not trying to just report on a study, but trying to figure out what the takeaways are for teachers. What can they do? How is this actionable? Um, so kind of the first step is just look casting a really big net and looking at as much research as we can, because we, we don't want to focus too much on a specific topic. Um, because you know, as you know, uh, teachers are a very big, diverse audience, and they have lots of different needs. Some teachers want to focus more on kind of the basics. What's project-based learning? What can I do in my classroom to help kids learn? Some kids, some teachers would be more interested in things like what's the latest advancements in cognitive science, in neuroscience? Like, what have I not learned? What wasn't available to us 10 years ago? 20 years ago when I was learning how to be a teacher um, that I should know about now because obviously um, teaching and learning, it's always advancing. We're always learning new things, especially when it comes to how brains work, the science of learning, what's effective reading instruction look like. We're always learning new things. So we try to really appeal to as many different needs as possible. And boiling it down to 10 is very hard. <laughs> if you look at the... Uh, the actual document that we work off of, it is well over 100 pages long. Um, I narrow it down probably to 50 studies at first. And then uh, I talk with my team and we figure out, we start, you know, whittling things down. I loved the selection. I, uh, I, uh, I, I color-coded, I highlighted, I uh, sorted them as I was reading them into three categories. One that I thought was uh, really valuable to me at a personal level. Five that reinforced my confirmation bias. Like, I'm doing it right, you know? Like, I really appreciate these. And then two that are going to be food for thought for changing my practice in the coming year. Like, I'm, I need to look into these and I'm, I probably need to read the studies actually themselves and like consider it. So it was a nice, uh, it was a nice array of articles. I really appreciated that. There, there are 10, there are 10 like pretty different studies. And even within some of those, um, those segments, Yuki, I saw that you and your co-author were even referencing some other relevant articles. Like so these are a couple years old, or this is another one that's relevant to this topic. You did a great job of contextualizing without being overwhelming. Um, and so like we could jump around all across this list. One of them that like I think I made the most notes about uh, was it was number two in your list. And this was a study of highlighting. And it's interesting that highlighting jumps out to me because it's not a practice that particularly resonates with me. Um, it's something that I, I had some rich discussions with a co-teacher at one point um, late in my teaching career uh, about like note taking and highlighting, like how do we facilitate students really getting the most out of annotating their reading. And this was a study that was looking at 
how, I mean, you tell me, you tell me what the study was about. You know more about it than I do. What was the highlighting study about? All right. So there's a big problem with highlighting. And the problem is that students oftentimes don't know how to highlight content effectively, how to highlight material effectively. So typically what you see is the whole page is highlighted because the student thinks that everything is important. They don't want to, they want to make sure that they retain 100% of the information. So they tend to highlight as much information as they can. Well, what stood out to me in the summary that you wrote was that the article compared um, classrooms where instructors were explicitly directing or providing support for identifying the relevant highlighting material versus conditions where the students were making decisions, often novice decisions about what material was worthy of being highlighted. It's not just about how much, but like which things are important to be highlighting. And then what the findings coming out of that show about how students can learn to highlight more effectively and the considerable impact that we get out of helping them, not just how much, but also which things are relevant to be highlighting. Right. It's not that highlighting itself is ineffective. It's just a tool for, you know, marking information. But it's helpful once you get into that kind of that metacognitive space, it's helpful to start giving students the tools to be able to identify what to highlight. And what that means is don't highlight everything you're trying to memorize. Instead, instead look for the key ideas, the big concepts that you're trying to learn about and highlight those and use that as a way to identify information that you want to learn about. Because if a kid highlights, if a student highlights like an entire page, that's not helpful. It, it's very satisfying for the student and it gives the student kind of like a sense of productivity and a sense that they've now kind of more or less, you know, learned the material. But, you know, you don't learn material by memorizing it. You have to be able to, you know, reflect on it. You have to be able to explain it. You have to be able to apply it in different ways. And highlighting doesn't do that. Highlighting just identifies the material that you should be looking at. So when you pair highlighting with other strategies like summarizing or taking better notes, like using highlighting as a starting point, and then going from there to using what you highlight to write summaries about the content that you just highlighted, or using highlighting as a way to um, refresh your memory on what questions you might have. So you highlight a key term, and then later on, you do a pop quiz and you ask yourself, um, what does this term mean? You know, what do these unfamiliar term, terms mean? What do these, you know, key ideas, what's the, the point of these key ideas? When highlighting is used as a starting point for these deeper comprehension, comprehension strategies, then highlighting is effective. But you need to get students to that point where they're using highlighting effectively. And teachers are great for doing that because, you know, when you look at the difference between a teacher and a student, it's the difference between an expert and a novice. And a novice learner, won't necessarily know what to highlight. You know, a, a teacher would because the teacher understands the material. But if, it, if it's your first time learning something, you don't necessarily know what the key ideas are. You don't necessarily know what to highlight and what's irrelevant because you know almost everything kind of looks relevant. Uh, it's not until you develop a level of expertise that you be begin to know what to highlight. Um, so it's helpful to get teachers in. It's, it's actually not helpful. It's crucial to get teachers in 
to give students uh, effective highlighting strategies and pairing them up with all the other strategies that are effective. Dare I say, uh, to make highlighting effective, you could pair it with some of the findings of one of the other articles on the list, and that if you can teach kids to look at an uh, informational article in a kind of a hierarchical way. What are the main topics? And then what are the subtopics? And you can highlight those. You can go back through that list, make an outline with those, set it aside, come back two days later and say, what are the details about the topics in this outline that I actually remember? Uh, and you will then be practicing not just effective highlighting, but the spacing and retrieval practice that was highlighted in the article if I will, an authoritative study of two high-impact learning strategies, uh, which was one of the, uh, I have a classroom that is a highly, uh, I highly leverage retrieval practice as one of my primary instructional strategies. So that was one of those like, yeah, keep it up. You're, you're, that's, that's good return on investment. And so uh, that was exciting for me to see that on the list. Yeah, it's really interesting because in one of the, so We've been talking about retrieval practice and spacing, but this particular study that uh, I'm referencing in the article is a meta-analysis. So it's looking at a broad range of studies and it's looking at kind of what's the field look like now in terms of what these effective learning strategies are. So we're not just looking at single studies, but now we're saying, is there a kind of an authoritative statement that we can say about retrieval practice and spacing? And at this point, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that retrieval practice and spacing are effective ways for students to learn the material. Because from cognitive science, we know that if you're not repeatedly accessing memories, then you're going to forget whatever you've learned. That uh, if you expect a student to, you know, on week one of the semester to learn something and still remember it, you know, months later, chances are it's going to be long forgotten. Um, because you need students to repeatedly access those memories in order to strengthen those memories. Um, and that makes a lot of sense because there's only so much information we can hold. If we don't regularly use information, we're going to forget whatever we've learned. So you need to not only have students learn the information, but repeatedly learn it, to, to relearn it multiple times throughout the school year if you want to really reinforce that learning. So retrieval practice and spacing are very effective strategies. And in one of the studies looking at retrieval practice, uh, you had two groups of students. The first group of students studied the material twice. The second group of study studied the material once and then spent an equal amount of time doing practice tests. And you had pretty significant differences in how the second group of studies performed. They outperformed the first group of studies by a, a quite considerable uh, amount because they're not just trying to learn and memorize the information, they're expressing it, they're, they're using it in multiple ways. Uh, I've thought about this before. In our education system, what gets assessed is the expression or the application. And the opportunity to practice that is not always commensurate with the uh, presentation or consumption of information. And so when you get that... Uh, retrieval practice into the routine, you give them more opportunities to express, which is ultimately what we assess. So it seems uh, fair from a student perspective to give them opportunities to practice the thing that you're going to assess later. 
And well, and a piece of that is always navigating. Uh, it's it's a balance. It's a it's not quite tension, but it's a balancing act between being able to have assessments that mirror or faithfully represent the learning opportunities. Um, you want authentic assessment. You want authentic authenticity in how it's representing the way the skill you anticipate it will be used. You know, after graduation, after you know, in whatever the real world is as they define it. But it also needs to mirror what they're experiencing in the classroom. But you don't want it to go too far the other way and start teaching to the test, so to speak, where everything you do is just rote repetition of what you're going to ask them to do in the final version. And so finding the appropriate you know, middle ground, right, find that middle way that Lawrence, you're so fond of, um, to be able to have it overlap appropriately in the expression of skills and in, but also have some novelty to it as well. Um, there's, there's, we can strike a balance. Many teachers are, are, are seeking that balance. Um, because we don't want to be all the way one or all the way the other. As, as education is a community endeavor, there are lots of stakeholders and sometimes teachers often, often teachers, uh, are pressured to do things in their classroom that may not necessarily be consistent with, uh, the best, their perception of the best learning opportunities for their kids. And, uh, one that, piece about relationship that you mentioned in these top 10, that the teacher and the kid's relationship is going to allow those kids to give themselves the permission to kind of like sink in and raise themselves to the teacher's expectations is really important. But when decisions about what's happening in that classroom are made at increasingly further distances from the classroom, I think it really does help, uh, to have uh, these consumable connections to research that you're providing, um, not just so that the teacher can feel good about their choices uh, and not just so the teacher can try to persuade some of those other stakeholders, but when there's a conflict, the teacher can be reminded that the decisions that they're making, even though other people do not see that they're valuable, are actually valuable. And if you need to find some way to support those decisions in your classroom when there's external pressures asking you to change, then that's that's something worth digging your heels into. Uh, and I appreciate that you guys are are working uh, and providing those kinds of uh, informational pieces. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes there's a contradiction in teaching where um, you want students to do well on tests because that's how learning is measured. But you also want to create students that are just good human beings, that know how to interact with each other, that know how to learn about the world around them. So these are kind of things that are measured in the you know these are long scales of time. You know, these like the impact of a teacher shouldn't necessarily be narrowed down to well, how much of an improvement do they make on students' you know test scores? Like the impact of a teacher should be thought of, you know, on a, on a much larger scale, looking at our students graduating more, you know, at the end of high school, because they had a third grade teacher that really inspired them to learn more about insects. You know, like, like those are hard to measure, but they make a really big impact. And teachers are aware of this. Uh, the problem is that that kind of impact often isn't measured in schools, and it's not reflected in how we value teachers especially from kind of like a, you know, a, a top-down perspective. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we measure the value of a teacher by these very short-term gains. But really, 
what a lot of the research that I look at and what we look at at Utopia more in general is kind of just looking at what impact does a teacher have, not just on the short term, but really what are the life-changing impacts that a teacher can have on students. So looking at the study you mentioned on relationships and rigor, oftentimes a new teacher is told, you know, don't smile until Christmas. And there's kind of like a grain of truth to that where you don't want to be every student's best friend, you know, on day one, uh, because they'll walk all over you. You know, if, if you have no rules, if you let everything go free and you have chaos, that's probably not a good way to start the school year. But you don't want to go the opposite direction and, you know, not smile at all, not be friendly, treat everything as, you know, a business that it's basically you're giving them information. Their job is to learn it and memorize it and do well on the test because that is now you're going, you know, on the opposite end, opposite end of the spectrum. What you want is a good balance where, you know, you build relationship with relationships with students. You know, you don't have to be their friend, but you have to show that you care for them because when you show that you care for them and you show that you're invested in their learning, they'll be much more willing to invest in their own learning. Um, and they'll be much more willing to go the extra mile for you. Uh, if you have high expectations, but you don't have those, if you don't pair those high expectations with support, academic support, emotional support, psychological support, you're basically setting them up for, setting them up for failure. So it's very important to pair relationships with rigor. Uh, to me, it's a false dichotomy, basically. Like, if you want rigor, you need to have a strong foundation of relationships. You need to show that you have a, a community of learners in your classroom that you really, you're not just expecting them to learn something because they'll do well on a test, but you want them to learn something because it's useful. It's valuable information to learn. You want them to be able to see the relevance in what they're learning. And the only way to do that is to really just focus on building relationships and building relevance into the material. So that I, I want to jump in because your, your comments about, being good humans to one another resonates me with me for a hundred different reasons. One of the things that I thought about and Lawrence, one of the things that we bring up on the show pretty regularly, I think is the idea. Good pedagogy very often has impacts across like a wide constellation of outcomes, some of which are measurable, some of which are not measurable, which is some of what you were talking about. Like we very often teachers get evaluated on this one piece here, even though they are professionally interested in this wide range of outcomes for their students, some of which don't actually manifest themselves for decades. And so we sometimes talk about doing the good teaching because good teaching for this one non-measurable priority will also have positive impacts on some of the measurable priorities. So it's all going the same direction anyway. So like make the good choice in the moment. And one of the other studies on your list, I'm going to tell you burdened me. Like you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Lawrence, um, the different categories of studies. This is the one that by far was the most of like, I need to sit with that one because that, that might change my practice. Um, and it was number and it was and it was number 5 because i don't think you could find a single student in any of my classes who would accuse me of giving too many breaks um that's not the vibes of what i had in my classrooms uh i was i was about burn bright like what these are our 90 minutes and we are going to the moon like and like 
I hope I strove to do that with humanity. Like we are in this together. This is a beautiful thing we are pursuing, but by God, we are not wasting one single minute that we have together. Like, like go. Isn't that amazing? Right. Go run, start now. Let's go. Like I, I, I don't think I ever gave a single brain break in my entire career. I'm not sure that I've ever given a brain break in my life. Uh, it just, it didn't resonate with me. It didn't resonate with that whole idea of like, pick your priority and pursue it to the end of the earth. And I will tell you that the, stu- the study that you wrote about specifically those brain scans, where they talk about the tremendous amount of processing that's going on during those brain breaks, uh, where they're resting and they're replaying, they're replaying what was happening in the lesson and they're going through it like really, really fast. And their brain is really iterating on and reflecting on what's going on for likely very much. So at the subconscious level. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's going to sit heavy on me. Uh, Cause I accept the value of that. And I accept that there are other benefits to breaks. And you know what? That might be what gets me to that. Mm, that's going to be tough. And I don't know what I'm going to do with that yet, Yuki, because I've only been sitting with it for like two hours so far. But that was a really good example of there are times where like I, I feel really great about the way that I generally run most of my classes. I didn't ever feel like students were exhausted. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, I don't care about these problems. I didn't feel like I had that that issue. And so I wouldn't have gone looking for research to tell me to do a brain break, but by being engaged with the material that you and your team is creating and with the, with the ongoing education literature, generally, I had the opportunity to encounter something that got in my way. And now like, you know what, maybe that needs to be complicated for me. Like maybe that's something that needs to become an issue for me. And like, maybe I'm not noticing that students are, are tired because I'm not looking for it. Or maybe I'm, I'm not reaping a benefit because that I don't even know exists. And I need to be able to engage with that opportunity. So that one, uh, thank you for making my life more complicated. Uh, I also highlighted that one because I instituted a major systemic shift to include brain banks this year for the first uh, time. And I, uh, I do them when my kids ask for them. I say, hey, someone suggested a brain break. How do we feel about that? Okay, you guys seem to want that. So, okay, we'll have a brain break now. And uh, I said, what do you guys want to do for your brain break? And uh, all my four classes chose different things. And what uh, I have learned from this is that some of those choices are better than others. Uh, I got two of my classes. One chose to do a... uh, paper rock scissors tournament where they stand up they find a partner they go to other places in the room they do that then they move around and they find another partner and they do that and they just have a good time going around the room doing that i've got another group of kids that they wanted me to play just dance videos which is a video game from youtube and then they will dance to it as though it's a video game in the room so i got I said, I'm only going to do this if more than half of you dance. And then I'll get like 70% of my kids standing up and dancing during this brain break. And that, that I feel really good about that. But my other two classes, one of them wanted to play uh, jail man, which is my uh, anti uh, execution version of Hangman, And uh, the other wanted to do like five or six trivia questions. And What I learned from the research is that if we can get them off of concentration, where they're just kind of enjoying themselves, they're actually relaxed. Like, it's not just a break from my content. It's not just a break from my cognitive tasks that I'm asking them to engage in. It's actually like, no, 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 we're just playing around now. Uh, 
So th those two classes probably got the benefits of that brain break. And my other two classes that chose cognitive activities for the break probably weren't. So now I get to improve further by uh, reconsidering or guiding or help scaffolding them to options that are consistent with these uh, brain scan return of investments. So I love that particular article as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and this is really amazing because I'm thinking about how we've covered brain breaks or brain-based learning over the course of a decade at Edutopia. And I remember 10 years ago, I think I would like look at our coverage then and, and feel a little uncomfortable because back then we didn't have a really good understanding of you know what brain breaks were we didn't have a really good um, understanding of kind of the the neuroscience behind taking a break uh, and obviously a lot of this is because of newer technology that we've been able to you know make use of um, like FM, fmri machines like looking at brain activity actual brain activity um, looking at um, how the brain is highly active during a break even if it's not, you know, currently active, actively learning something. And a lot of the reason for that is because the brain needs time to process information. Like a student can't just absorb information and then understand it. They need uh, breaks to be able to process the information, to be able to reflect on the information, and also to kind of summarize the information and start categorizing, categorizing it and start creating a kind of a mental map, a schema of how that information fits into not just the lesson itself, but into what else they know. Because if a kid isn't connecting what they're currently learning to stuff they've learned in the past, then you know they're not gonna be able to understand it as well. They're not going to be able to um, remember it as well. So it's very important to have these breaks so kids can really just strengthen those connections and learn the material more deeply. Um, Speaking of schemas, another paper that really heavily uh, is is sort of planting itself in my brain for changing future uh, or adding future experiences is revisiting the value of concept mapping and sketch notes. And um, it's interesting because what I what happened is that in my early career, like I'm a first or second year teacher, I knew about the value of concept mapping. And then I learned about some other approaches, some other strategies. I fell in love with, um, with retrieval practice and I let that fade away. I let that old practice fade away. And then here I get a reminder that, Oh, but you know, it's still awesome. And there are ways to, to incorporate this with what you already do and you're not doing that. So that was a nice, uh, not quite an admonition, but just sort of like, Hey, but what about this other good stuff you used to do? Uh, there's space for that now. And so that's, that's another one that I'm really looking forward to critically reevaluating in my current practice. Yeah. And it's easy when you're a teacher, you know, you have these concept maps already in your head. Because you've lived with the material, you know, you live and breathe it. You understand it at a very deep level. So you understand those hierarchies. You understand those different categories. But for a student who is learning a topic for the first time, everything's a mess. So it's really helpful to explicitly start showing students what the relationships are between different ideas uh, to help them kind of map out the terrain of the material and to show them that not every piece of information or not every concept exists kind of on a single plane linearly because you know 
when we learn something, we don't just like memorize, you know, from A to Z linearly. We start organizing. We start looking for patterns. We start trying to figure out how does everything fit into what I know. Um, and these are, you know, teachers. It's easy to think that students are kind of as they're learning the material, they're doing all this work already. But it's helpful to actually explicit, explicitly show them these categories, show them these relationships, because otherwise students might have might create you know connections that are flat out wrong. They might think that um, something is connected when it shouldn't be. Um, it's really good to you can have kids, you can have students kind of try to map out those those connections, but it's very helpful to then guide them towards you know, the actual uh, correct way to, to learn something. Well, and that was one of the pieces that I felt like uh, was showing, if I understood correctly, that was one of the things that I felt like was showing up in the study itself that you referenced in your, in your roundup was the importance of organizational sketching because novice students without the understanding of the content are just doing what they called representation, representational sketching where they're it's, I think of it as sort of in my head as flat structure without prioritizing or higher organizing in a hierarchical way, you know, big ideas, supporting ideas, examples, details, some of that sort of thing. It made me think of um, when I was teaching AP biology, I sort of, I, I was mimicking another instructor's practice that was basically doing a live version of sketchnoting throughout a, a lecture or discussion, depending on how good a job I was doing that day. And I was, I was, I didn't realize I was doing some of this and representing it to the students and how I was organizing. I was filling the whole whiteboard, man. I'll tell you what, like 12 feet across, four feet up and down. The whole thing was full by the end of a, you know, a 90 minute period. And I just, I just, I just, that's how I do my notes. So I would be showing them like big ideas and thick arrows and like, you know, little, little shiny lines to show this is a big deal. And then there's a little bitty detail and I write it in a thinner line and I write it in smaller words. And, and so when it was all said and done, it kind of had some of that hierarchy, but I don't think that I ever explained to students why I was doing any of those things. Like it was coming out in the conversation, but I wasn't like, this is a big arrow because this is a big idea. And this is a little bubble down here because this is just one of many examples. And it's not nearly as important as understanding why this is one of many examples of this bigger thing over here. And I think if I understood the study correctly, that's really the valuable piece of what we can do as teachers to support students in successfully sketch noting or doing concept mapping or any of these sort of visual representations is we've got to help them sort and uh, in a hierarchical way information to construct that more nuanced and sophisticated schema because as novices in the, in the subject, they don't know how to do that spontaneously, like necessarily, if they already knew it, we wouldn't be teaching it. And so that's a key piece of, if we're going to have them sketch and we should, cause it's great. We also need to help them organize that sort of a sketch, which we can do either through explicit instruction or feedback that we provide after the fact or support for iteration over multiple attempts, like whatever that looks like, they've got to be able to organize from representational, some sort of flat, just literal verbatim what it is to organizational, which has structure that is key to being able to retain long-term. Yeah, and that organizational mapping is also really key to understanding uh, the material at a deeper level. And uh, primarily because it helps students 
spot gaps and their learning. And let me give you kind of a really simple example. So if I wanted you to memorize a phone number, right, and you start telling me a phone number, you know, and you give me nine digits, right, error code, three numbers, you know, three numbers, like you just immediately know that's wrong because, you know, a phone number is 10 digits, right? But if you don't know, if you don't have that kind of like understanding of the larger structure of what a phone number is, if you don't know that the phone number is 10 digits, you might start reciting nine digits and think you're right. But if you have if you have that key piece of information that phone numbers are 10 digits long, then you can immediately see that there's a gap in your knowledge. There's a gap right there. And that gap comes from understanding the kind of the interplay between the actual content versus the larger structural dimensions of that content. Um, so it's really important, not just, or even something, another simple thing would be like, you know, the planets. Like if you know how many planets there are, and for whatever reason you have one extra, then you kind of know there's something wrong. So it's good to have that kind of that structural mapping. Um, and that's something that's, you know, that, that teachers being experts often are aware of, um, but they don't necessarily know that students need that kind of that larger sense of what the, the structure of the information looks like. Well, is there is there a particular article like that on that 10 that is like, well, actually, this brings me to another question. Not only did you whittle it down to 10, you chose an order for those 10. Uh, why, like, what is the significance? Like, how did you fill in the slots one through 10? And we can talk about cognitive load here. <laughs> We're trying not to burden people, you know, our readers too much. We don't want to push all the difficult stuff to the beginning because they're going to be exhausted. I mean, this is, you know, this is a long piece and it's much longer than our typical article. We don't want people to be exhausted, you know, two studies in. <laughs> we want to, to pace it so that we have something that's, you know, pretty challenging, might challenge some assumptions you might have, but we want to make sure that they're engaged throughout the entire piece. Um, Speaking of cognitive load, don't blast your classroom with irrelevant uh, d decorations, but instead you uh, judiciously use your uh, classroom decorations as supports and scaffolding for the instruction that you're going to have. So, you know, manage that cognitive load. Yeah, and we, we spoke about classroom decorations, I think, three years ago. Uh, one big difference was, those, was that those earlier studies were all laboratory settings, and this was an actual classroom, which I thought was pretty significant because it's basically reinforcing the idea that what we're seeing in a laboratory setting. Uh, so a lot of those earlier studies were basically just like having walls in front of students and systematically putting decorations or different things up in front of the students and then measuring what their attention, you know, how on task they were uh, for the activity. Um, but the, the two sets of studies, the two studies in 2022 that we talk about, look in the actual classrooms, like actual natural settings of classrooms, not a laboratory uh, anymore. So I thought it was pretty significant that the research is really confirming the idea that busy walls that are distracting um, are very difficult to learn in. Um, and I, and I do want to make it clear that that doesn't mean you want blank walls. It's still very important to have student work, you know, up on your walls. It's very important to have um, images and representations that are welcoming. So you don't want a wall 
um, that's full of people who don't look like your students, uh, because that alone can increase cognitive load on students. If a student is in classroom and is kind of thinking, wow, why does the industry look very different from you know, my family? Like, do I belong here? You don't want students to be preoccupied with ideas of not belonging and belonging in, in the classroom because that'll occupy precious cognitive resources that could be spent on learning the academic content. One of the things about this article is uh, I've been thinking about classrooms differently since um, we went through a global pandemic where we actually lost physical classrooms. And um, I've been thinking that classrooms are a technology that we use to get a group of people to collaboratively concentrate on something for a period of time. And just like any tool there are right ways to take care of it, and there's right ways to use it, and there are less effective ways to take care of it, and there are less effective ways to use it. And so considering that our physical space is a tool, it's nice to uh, encounter research that says, hey, this is how you take care of this tool. This is how you prepare and present this tool. Uh, and I thought that was satisfying. This is better with all of you. Can I can I do a point of order? I I I I don't know about you, Ralph, but I was lukewarm about the other article. I would rather, if you still have time and are comfortable, actually go through all of them. And then, Ralph, like, would you be willing to conceptually cut this that to a, a one segment, forty five minute episode? Yeah, that... I mean, we've done we've done. I think we've done it before. We've yeah, cut, I we've know... cut segments. I don't. I think we've done one segment. Yeah, so I just would rather have. I, if you're down to like, to like hit the checklist, I would rather talk with you than what than the other thing we had planned for today, Ralph. If that's okay. Excellent. The uh, the idea that the depictions that you have in your classroom are um, relevant to your students, you kept using. Uh, we kept back. We kept going back to depictions of who gets to be depicted as learners and participants in your room, and that that idea of who gets to be a learning participant in your room is directly related to the article. Um, uh, a landmark study strikes a resounding note for inclusion. This would be number three regarding the Individuals with Disability Education Act. Could you tell us more about that study? There's a moral and ethical imperative to have kids belong um, in environments that are welcoming and that help them learn a variety of skills. And this applies to all students, not just students with disabilities, but um, more so for students with disabilities because one um, issue is you don't want to isolate students in the name of academics. Um, if students need extra academic support, that's great, you know, you should provide that, but you don't want to put them, you know, in a situation where they are completely isolated from their friends, their peers, where they're not really learning how to interact with other students. So there's a, in the past, there was this tendency to say that, yes, students with disabilities should be uh, in general education classrooms, uh, but there wasn't really a lot of uh, evidence to support whether or not uh, this had positive impacts on their academics. We knew it had 
significant positive impacts on kind of just their mental well-being, just their ability to be uh, happy and healthy kids. But we didn't really have a lot of evidence on what this uh, would mean for their actual learning. So this study, you know, it was a large-scale study, and it looked at 24,000 adolescents. And what it found was that spending a majority of the day, at least 80%, in general education classrooms boosted test scores, reading and math test scores, by uh, 24 and uh, 18 points, which is pretty significant. So what the study, basically the takeaway from the study is that there's really no excuse to not make the general education classroom the default setting for students with disabilities. That really, we should be trying to do our best to make sure that they're not isolated, that they're not put in um, environments where they don't feel connected to their peers. That really the default approach should be putting them in general education classrooms and then providing additional support on top of that. Not to replace that, but to put, it, to put that additional uh, IEP support on top of that and to make sure that they get the tailored instruction that they need. Um, so to me, one of the, you know, one of the big reasons why we included this um, in our list is because it's very important not to have approaches that focus so much on academic support that we sacrifice a student's uh, mental well-being, that we need to make sure that all students, uh, not just students with disabilities, but all students, are in environments where they can learn how to interact with other students. They can make friends because all of that is important to their to their development, to their development as uh, a child, to their social and emotional development. And um, now that we have kind of these concrete numbers showing that there are academic benefits on top of all of these social and emotional benefits, that should be the default approach to, to have 80% or more uh, of their time in mainstream classrooms, in general ed classrooms. This was a study that was in my category of affirmation. Um, working with Universal Design for Learning, or UDL, is a substantial fraction of my, my research agenda, just generally. And so this is something where advocates for... Students and people with disabilities generally have been have been saying this for for decades for for a long long time now, and so to have a really substantially sized study like what you cited in your in your roundup to be able to demonstrate the academic impact, like all the other impacts are valuable and important. I appreciate you opened your comments with a moral and ethical imperative, like that's chef's kiss, yes sir. Um, and for anybody who may still be inclined to argue from the academic measurement lens. Here are some really clear numbers to say that's another reason that we have got to design classrooms, both from a physical and from an instructional standpoint, with the idea of proactive flexibility. And that was really, that's in my head what I think is the actionable takeaway from research like this, is when we think about working with students, and let us imagine I design a learning experience, and let us imagine that 80% of my students engage with that experience in a way that doesn't require any more active interaction intervention from me. They, there's, okay, these are the instructions. I'm going to start doing them. And then there are some number of students in my classroom who are not able to engage in the way that I initially crafted it for any of a variety of reasons. And some of those reasons are going to be 
what show up in IEPs and some of them are not. But we, it is a incumbent upon us as educators to respond to those needs, both proactively and then when we become aware of them in the moment, to provide as much access to that fundamental learning experience in our classroom as we possibly can, because the benefits are tremendous and are widespread across the full spectrum of academic outcomes that we could possibly think to be relevant. And so what I appreciated seeing this study show up in your roundup is specifically speaking to academic outcomes, it has a huge impact for students with disabilities. I folks, those who have an IEP and those who do not to be able to be learning with their peers. And I think that it speaks to the, the social nature of learning, like to be able to be with your, your primary and most qualified instructor for the content because they designed the learning experience, to be able to be learning with your peers who are working on the same questions, that we have got to help students be in that environment to the greatest extent possible. And that doesn't mean that we ignore IEPs. IEPs are appropriate. We should do those things also. And we should do everything that we can to be able to make that environment as accessible for as many students as possible rather than saying this is the this is the baseline experience and if you can't engage with it as i initially designed it then you got to go somewhere else that's going to have dramatic consequences for the learning that those students are able to have if they're not able to access that experience that you've designed so i i just i really appreciate it because it's a, another resounding call to make what we design as accessible as possible for all the students um, who are assigned to our to our instruction. Well, and I feel like that's a that's a really great um, connection. If we're going to another art study on your list, um, planning for flexibility and a diversity of experiences, I feel like is a good segue into the importance of play based learning, which is another study that showed up on your list. Um, because play can mean so many different things to so many different learners and is necessarily tied to individual interests uh, or nascent passions that learners may have. Like there, I really am compelled by building things. Like I, my, my five-year-old daughter, the older of the two, she loves to build things. She loves to do chemistry. She loves to mix things together. And so if she's going in, she, if you've got magnetiles, she is here for it. She's going to build some awesome stuff with those magnetiles. And in the outgrowth of that kind of work, she can start to ask really compelling questions that a teacher can start to link back to content goals and can start to link back to other material to do interlinkage and make a more interconnected schema. And all of that has to start with learners having the opportunity to play, to be able to be creative and to be able to um, get some of the benefits of these brain breaks things that we were talking about earlier, because play can be relaxing. And so it, while when I first saw the the section divider, I was like play-based learning. And I was like, yeah, play-based learning is good. I, I don't know that I needed this study to tell me that, but the, your roundup was a good reminder of some of the learning opportunities and the benefits that come from play-based learning. And so for that, I appreciated it. And, you know, uh, these articles are for the entire education space. Uh, I, as a, um, secondary science instructor, what play-based might mean in my classroom is very different than what like the original target audience of that article is about the age range of that, of that audience. Um, so though that, that wasn't, um, necessarily super compelling article for me, it does reinforce that if you're an elementary school teacher, that's feeling pressures to do these certain things with your kids, uh, like sit them down 
and d- drill these math problems and that's what you, that's what you got to do while you know that giving them time to be self-directed in their exploration is very very important to having large returns on their learning that that tension that you feel that what you know is good for your kids is supported we we are so, like that is what teaching is and you have you have professional pedagogical permission to use your time to support the things that are good for your kids. Yeah. And and one of the, for me, one of the big takeaways about that research is that oftentimes, you know, if you're a teacher, the best approach is the middle ground. So you don't want, you know, teacher directed, teacher centered instruction, where you're basically telling students everything that they need to be doing. Um, but if you look at the, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum, if you let kids do whatever they want, oftentimes it's not going to be very productive. So what you want is something that's kind of more in the middle where you let them explore, let them be curious, let them try to figure things out on their own and then step in kind of when they're straying too far off the path. If they're way off the mark, then you can say things like, you know, maybe you should try this. And, and that's really what it kind of boils down to for me. It's not like telling them what the answer is, but it's kind of guiding them towards the answer so that if they're really confused or if they're struggling, just, you know, step in and say, well, you know, maybe, you know, if you're building a, a, a tower as high as you can, you know, maybe try having the base a little bit, be a little bit longer or bigger or something, you know, just stepping in with your expertise and not necessarily telling them what to do, but just give them ideas, gently nudge them towards the answer. You don't want to you know, tell them what the answer is, but if left to their own devices, kids can spend a lot of time trying to figure out the answer. Um, and that, that in of itself can be fairly unproductive. So it's really just stepping in and guiding them gently. It makes me think of some of the themes that came out from our recent discussion around reverse engineering of, if we say, do whatever you want, but I don't have enough experience to know what I want, then I don't necessarily know where I can go or what I can do. And it makes me think again of my five-year-old daughters and being able to let them play in a fairly open way. They will reveal to you their interests and their curiosities and their noticings and wonderings. And then it is the work of the educator to, to see them noticing, to see them wondering, and then to work with that and sculpt that and direct that. For example, it makes me think of at home, we, I saw one of my daughters um, mixing things together in the bathroom. She was, she had water in a cup and she was mixing shampoo and she was mixing conditioner and she was seeing what was happening in her potion. And that was interesting. We let that go for a little while. And then eventually she starts dumping a whole bunch of shampoo into the mixture. And I was like, my child, why are you doing that? And she's like, well, I want to, I, I want to see it like change color or something. And she's running out of idea. I noticed she's running out of ideas for how she could make changes. And so then that was an opportunity for me to say, oh, if you want to see color changes, let me tell you about cabbage juice. 
let's let's make some cabbage juice and let's get a few things out of the fridge and let's let's talk about what things can mix and some of their properties that might start to predict color changes and we had a whole great experience doing some cabbage juice chemistry which if if listeners you're not familiar is a great opportunity for it's a ph indicator and so it changes colors depending on the ph of the solution and we had a really wonderful experience and the girls learned about acids and bases and indicators and i can make something out of that only because the girls revealed to me their interest in color change and mixtures, which I only knew because they had play in the first place. And part of it is also like just giving teachers more tools, more ideas of things to try in the classroom, because you know there, there's still a, there's still room for direct instruction in the classroom. You know, you want students to you know get their basic facts, you know, going. Uh, you want to talk about dates and names, like you know, imagine talking about the life of an inventor without ever mentioning the inventor's name. Like that's a piece of factual information that's very important to know. <laughs> so you still have to go over all of these basic foundational facts. Um, but it's also about finding different ways to encourage kids to learn about the material. So you can have you know, a short session where you're doing a lot of direct instruction, where you're going over the facts, where you're going over kind of just the basic information that they need to know, but also you want them to be more curious and creative and to start taking what, they are, what they've learned and start applying it, applying it in different ways. You know, maybe they can act out a different historical event, or maybe they can think about what would have happened if a different country won World, World War II. You know, there's room for all these different approaches. And then there's the middle ground, which is, okay, now that we've gone over the basics, now that you've gone and tried to explore and to brainstorm all these wild scenarios, now let's try to, you know, bring the class back together and let's try to figure out, okay, what are the things that I think you should know at the end of the lesson? So it's really important not to rely on one strategy, not to rely on kind of this, you know, completely student-centered discovery learning approach because we, we kind of know that doesn't work very well. Um, or focusing too much on direct instruction and kind of explicit instruction and making sure that kids understand kind of the content. Um, it's good to have all these different approaches because every student is different and some students respond very well to direct instruction and they're really good at picking things up. Some students need to explore things a little bit more and to figure out, you know, what are the boundaries, what are the edges of what we're learning about because that's what gets them engaged. The play-based learning, uh, the center is giving control to the learner about how they are progressing through the material. And one other study that does the same thing is uh, number nine, uh, why learners push the pause button, uh, talking about the value of uh, videotaping lessons and instructions for uh and the benefits that may not be so well uh, understood of, of that kind of interfacing. Yeah, so this, uh, once again, goes into cognitive load theory. The way the two are connected is, imagine you're in class, right? And you're going over a really complex topic. There are students who are going to be sitting in your class who will be confused but they will be too scared to raise their hands and say, 
I don't understand this. Can you please go back and say it over again? Because I'm just not getting it. What's going to happen for the most part is those students are going to just sit there, accept that they're confused, and either if they're you know a, a quote-unquote good student, they're going to go back to the material later on their own time and figure it out, or there's going to be a big gap in their understanding. And all of this will be because oftentimes, and we even spoke about this a little bit earlier, um, the teacher has 60 minutes of material to go over in 60 minutes, right? You never think to yourself, I have, you know, I have a, a full class here. Let me only spend half the time over my lesson and spend the other half, you know. Most of the time, you want to cram as much as you can because the goal is to get students to learn as much as possible in that limited amount of time that you have. So oftentimes, oftentimes it's inadvertent, but you're kind of, as a teacher, you're kind of giving off the signal that there's a cost to stopping and going over the material uh, over again if any students are confused. And there are two different dimensions to that cost. For students, there's a personal psychological cost, which is a lot of students just are have a lot of anxiety about appearing as if they don't know the material um, because that's, you know, frightening. You know, it's, it's very frightening to tell the rest of the class, I'm scared. I'm not I'm scared. I don't understand material. You know, it's, it's, just, it's a scary thing to do, especially if you're a shy student, if you're an introvert, you know, you don't want to. Or if you're just a very reserved student, um, it's, it's, it could be challenging for students to pause and say, teacher, go over this again. Um, but what you're seeing, it, what, what we're seeing is that with videos, when students can pause and there's no kind of like social or psychological cost to pausing, students pause pretty profusely and they pause in the moments of a video uh, that are the most confusing, um, where something is happening and the information is very complex. And they need to spend a little bit more time uh, because it's always easier to go over information than it is to process it. Because sometimes you need a few extra moments. And during a live lecture, you don't necessarily have kind of that luxury of pausing the teacher and then going back to your notes or thinking, oh, the teacher, you know, there's a word that the teacher said that I don't really understand, but that's confusing. Um, let me, you know, go over my notes and see if we've gone over that vocabulary word vocabulary word before. Um, even in, you know, this podcast, we're putting out terms like retrieval practice um, that uh, listeners might not necessarily be uh, familiar with. So it's helpful to just pause the podcast and say, all right, what is retrieval practice? Because I don't think we ever actually defined it <laughs> in, in our talks. But when you're looking at a video, if you're looking at an instructional video, you do have the opportunity and, and, and really, it's, it's a great feature to be able to pause um, that video and if something's confusing, to go over it again or to look back at your notes or to search for it online to see what else um, about it is, you know, can inform your understanding of whatever the topic is. Um, so this is a very small study, but to me, it's, it's a powerful study because it shows the importance of cognitive load on learning, which is, Students can absorb only so much information. They need to, they need regular pauses throughout their learning. They need to be able to not just absorb the information, but they need to be able to process it. And those little pauses 
are kind of the points in which students are processing complex information. So what I'm seeing, and obviously this isn't in the study, but you know, there's kind of like a meter, a cognitive load meter. And when the, t the teacher is starting to go over really complex material, that cognitive load meter starts increasing. It starts increasing, and eventually it hits a point where the student is overwhelmed. And it's at that point where students often pause the video, take a few moments to be able to process the information at their own pace, at their own time. And then, you know, they rewind the video and go over the information again, or they can see the video. So to me, one of the benefits of instructional videos is that you're no longer kind of forced to have a one-to-one -one correspondence between the teacher going over the material and the student processing the material because that's never going to happen. You know, if students have covered the material before or if there's, you know, you're, you're top performing students, you might be going too slow for them. But for probably half the room or, you know, more than half the, the class, students are going to be struggling at different points. And the power to be able to stop the information at those points and to slow down time and to be able to process it at their own pace. That's very powerful. One of the things that you said fairly early in it, and I think it's really important, and you referred back to it a few times, is that I think it is this pernicious fundamental misunderstanding that drives goal setting in education is that you're this perception where even even practitioners who know this is not true feel a pressure to complete a predetermined curriculum here is the curriculum for the school year that you are to complete with your kids and when you said you know you got 60 minutes to develop to to portray 60 60 minutes of information or experience or whatever is scripted that's that that is one of the pressures that teachers have to navigate that these pieces of research help us challenge that it's okay to spend time of those 60 minutes on a brain break even though we're not going to get as far because they need that time it's it's okay to spend some of that time building relationships with your students because they're going to need that time uh, it's okay to spend some of that time doing uh, play directed learning because they need some of that time uh, and this this uh, idea that the curriculum is your job is is internalized by a lot of teachers and i think especially new teachers that i'm not doing well because i'm not keeping pace with my colleagues or i'm not doing well because i'm not going to get through all the curriculum and i just think that that judgment is intrinsically flawed because it ignores so many of the parts of good pedagogy that your roundup uh, it highlights uh, and this is just another one that if you give control of the speed of the lecture to your kids, they're going to be able to use that at a, at a rate that is important to them. So again, thank you for this work that you're doing. Well, and the the control, I think, is what's key and what what I think is underlying this specific study is what are the affordances of the tools that we are using? And I think specifically you highlighted several times in your comments, Yuki, the 
it is it's ridiculous to imagine that a lecture I would give for even 10 minutes is going to align with the pace at which a room of 30 learners need to encounter the information to appropriately internalize it. That's absurd. And I think any reasonable educator would be like, yeah, that is absurd. Of course not. I'd say, okay, if that is true, videos are an excellent opportunity to turn some control about pacing over to students. So even if I'm going to do 10 minutes of lecture to facilitate conversation, that there is tremendous value in creating a two-minute video of me reiterating the most critical information from that discussion in a way that facilitates students to pause, to rewind. And it can be easy to get frustrated, be like, well, they're just going to listen to it at 2x the speed. So like, am I just wasting my time? No. The fact that they're going to listen to it at 2x the speed and then pause when they need to and re-listen to that comment one more time because that was a that was a crescendo moment and they need to hear it twice. What a wonderful opportunity with this specific tool. And let us take advantage of that as educators because we can't do that in a live delivery of instruction. And this is research to show that they are going to use it. You're not wrong. They're absolutely going to mess with the delivery controls. And isn't that great? Isn't that great news that they're going to use the control they have to modulate the delivery of information to match what they can interpret? Terrific news. Yeah. And I mean, one of my goals isn't necessarily to promote, you know, instructional videos, to promote the pause button. Uh, for me, really, it's, it sheds light on just how students think and learn. And my goal is to have anyone reading that section to have this aha moment where they think, oh, you know what? The pacing of instruction doesn't necessarily match the pacing of learning. And that disconnect can manifest itself in different ways. And one way that we see is with how students learn or with how students pause instructional videos, but there's so many different ways. And it's, I mean, it's funny because a lot of these studies tie to each other, you know, but I mean, just the idea that the pacing is different, the teacher versus learner pacing might not be in alignment, you know, uh, manifests itself in the research on uh, brain breaks that, you know, if students need time to process the information, brain breaks give them that time to reflect and to absorb that information and to be able to make those connections that can't happen necessarily in real time when the student is sitting absorbing all of that information because that that alone requires a lot of cognitive effort you know you need to reflect afterwards to really understand the material there's one last one <laughs> there's one last one and I'm kind of glad that it got last because this is the one that I had highlighted as a personal note I'm, I've got a two and a half year old niece and I am really excited to visit her over this, this winter break and, uh, use my entire body to talk to her about letters and sounds. I'm really excited about that. So that's sort of like opened up a, a holiday activity for me based on this particular article. So tell us about a better way to learn your ABCs. Um, I always love studies like this because when you see it, when you when you see something like kids acting out the letter S and wiggling like a snake in the classroom, it's very easy to think, oh, they're 
having fun, but there's a deep fundamental uh, cognitive process going on there, which is that they're learning the material in different ways. They're processing the material in different ways. And when you process material in different ways, instead of just verbally, when you're processing it, processing, processing it kinesthetically, verbally, when you're enacting what you're learning, it just creates more durable learning. It encodes the material much more deeply. Um, it makes it so that kids are just more connected to what they're learning and it results in just better learning outcomes. Um, so when you have a, an example where kids are learning their ABCs, but you try to link it to them just moving out and then acting all the different letters and pretending like, you know, when you're doing the C and cat and the difference between C and cat versus the C and sauce and having kids kind of like explicitly act out those differences and having that explosive sound versus the softer sauce sound. Like really, kids will much, will understand the difference between those two C sounds if you just approach it in different ways. Um, if you just, you know, very dryly go over the different C sounds, they're not going to engage with the material as deeply as opposed to if you start really getting them to move their bodies and get them engaged and get them to think about what the differences in those sounds are. The, and this actually overlaps with a really old episode. I don't remember what it was, but I think it was in the double O's like four or five or six years ago. Uh, but one of the very first studies we read that was a brain scan study that was looking at math that was, but it was the same idea of approaching this in a way that activates more of our senses, which then activates more of our processing regions across our brain, which gives us an opportunity to then encode that information across more regions of our brain, which then produces the more durable learning that you are referencing. And so I, I see this in my, I have two five-year-old daughters at home who are in the process of learning to read. Um, they are, they are somewhere between pre-reading and early reading and so this kind of uh, an issue of one letter that can make two sounds is so salient to me right now. And just helping them access that nuance across more of their sensory processing regions, like I absolutely believe that can make a difference because that's a nuance that is going to hit them right at their zone of proximal development. Like that is at the edge of what they can access. And so being able to access it with more of their body and more of their cognition is exactly what they're going to need to be able to fully grasp and hold on to those subtleties of which there are a tremendous number, man, language is the worst. Like, why do we talk this way? And so being able to deal with all of those nuances and exceptions is something that all the help we can give them benefits them and will help them make that progress more quickly, which is then satisfying. And honestly, like my five-year-olds like to wiggle. So like they enjoy it too. And so we can do these things that makes them happy, that makes them enjoy it, that makes them connect positive emotions to reading in the first place, which has a tremendous number of benefits as far as cultivating a lifelong love of learning and a lifelong love of, love of reading in general. And so it goes back to what we've said several times now this afternoon of this wide constellation of benefits, both proximal and distal to the experience that are all good. And so the fact that wiggling 
helps me learn this letter right here, right now is a good enough reason unto itself. And if it has all these other downstream benefits also of a pleasant experience and a bonding experience with Uncle Lawrence, who's acting silly, and I'm going to remember him being silly for the rest of my life. So be it. That seems awesome. Like, that's great. Let's do all of these things together. Yeah. And one thing also that I like about uh, this research is that, you know, there was a time when you would read a study like that and think, oh, you know, these are kinesthetic learners. But now we know, like, pretty clearly that it's not that there are learners who learn in a specific way, but that learning things in multiple ways, you know, trying to learn things in different ways, is just better. When you, when you draw something, you're thinking about the original concept, you're thinking about the original kind of the semantic information, but you're also producing that information in different ways, and that helps you remember um, the material. So it's like it's very important to kind of highlight the contributions that research like this, like, you know, the ABC study um, has on our, on our understanding of the importance of encoding things in different ways. This has been great. This is, we've hung out all afternoon having a conversation with you about all things, the research you've rounded up and your approach to science communication generally. So first off, from me and from the show, thank you, Yuki, for taking your afternoon to have a conversation with us. We're going to let you have the last word. So if readers have enjoyed what you've written and they want to learn more from you about education and what education research can do for their practice, where can they find the things that you create? So everything is on edgetopia.org, and you can search for my name, UP Tirada, and then search for Education Research Highlights of 2022, and that should take you right to the article. Um, but we also do have a research newsletter that is relatively new, and you can sign up for that if you search for the Research is in Edgetopia Research Newsletter. That should get you to the sign-up page. Uh, but yeah, we have it monthly, and it has highlights. So if you like the highlights and the yearly roundup, you'll like the highlights that we do every month for the research newsletter. And they have, and we also include graphs, lots of graphs. I love graphs. And uh, all the articles and videos that we produce uh, related to research. Okay. How was the beer? I was first surprised by how prominent uh, I think like a coffee flavor was. I didn't expect coffee in my experience. And I felt like it was front and center, especially in the aroma, but also the first half of the flavor profile. It it tasted a lot like a coffee stout. And I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't aware this was a coffee stout when we started. The barrel aged like, um, flavors in the second half came through which i really enjoy and so especially as i drank some more of it um that was that was that was a pleasant experience i like to have a lot but uh, i never really got over like even now when i smell it i smell coffee first and that was surprising to me uh yeah i guess i it's another example of me not having a close read of the can i too did not uh prepare myself for the coffee addition to this so in addition to being the the standard chocolate porter, in addition to being whiskey barrel dated, also it also is a coffee. In there's coffee in there, and I think that the coffee and the whiskey barrel kind of played with it in a way that made this a little spicier. 
um, than uh, I was anticipating, and and that that's fine. That there's no complaints. Uh, it just it was kind of uh, a tart because I've had the standard shake. We've had the standard shake chocolate porter on this show, and that is a very mellow, smooth, rich and aromatic chocolate flavor and uh, experience. And this puts a little bit of spice on that. That kind of like sharpens it a little bit. That's interesting. I wouldn't have said the word spice in my experience. It was still, and maybe this is just a juxtaposition to all the cinnamon that we've done over the last few oh, months. Yeah. The It drank heavy to me. And like, I like heavy beers. So that's not necessarily a critique. It just, it tasted not nitro, but you know, the stoutness, the coffiness, it was it was a it was a thick, heavy drink, which is fine, and I enjoyed it. And I drank all of the beer that you gave me, so I'm I'm happy with all of that. Um, I didn't, I wouldn't have said spicy. So that's maybe I shouldn't say spicy. Out. Maybe I should say acidic. Yeah, that's the that's what I think I tried to describe with the barrel aged nature. I think um, is that like the little bit of uh, like uh, the whiskiness to it, um, perhaps. Thanks for hanging in with us. This, I'm sure, is going to end up being a very long episode. So if you've listened all the way through, you are a trooper and good for you. Um, We had a wonderful time having this conversation and having Yuki on with us. Uh, We hope you all have a wonderful new year. We hope you all have some restful time with those who are dear to you. We will see you in 2023. Until next time. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.